Hello friends and welcome to Talking Transformative Love, the podcast that talks vocation, love and mission, celebrating the valiant woman that was Mary Ward. Before we get into this episode, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people across Australia, paying our deepest respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello friends, welcome back to Talking Transformative Love Podcast. Today we have Suzanne O'Connor, who is a teacher and volunteer and has been involved in the Loretto world in some way or another. Suzanne, in my conversation with you, I know that you're a child of a mixed marriage or mixed religion marriage. (laughs) So you've got a Protestant mother and a Catholic father. I suppose having those two very different (laughs) faiths or you know two different perspectives I guess not very different but somehow what is the belief system or I suppose philosophy shaped your childhood and what continues to shape who you are today and as you respond to this I suppose what we want to know is what is your image of God I'm so old, I can remember the 1940s, and a mixed marriage was incredibly important. And, you know, I had Catholic friends whose fathers would not let them bring home boys who were Protestant. It was that serious. Mm. So my parents had been quite quite the revolutionaries, being married to each other. And what's more, they got married in a Presbyterian church in South mm. Australia. Both parents had volunteered in World War II. They're both in the Australian Army. But my father had had a very bad war. My mother had spent her five years in Albury, Wodonga, where there wasn't a lot of bombing. But she sort of took over our religious education. And first of all, that meant that we had to say our nighttime prayers with her. There was just... uh, I was the firstborn, so I was the pleaser. And then the secondborn was the naughty one. So we had to kneel at our mother's, you know, in front of our mother and say, gentle Jesus, the, the prayer, gentle yeah. Jesus, meek and mild. But the naughty <laughs> sister was um, a born atheist and she could only pray for as long as, we, until we got to mild. And then she started giggling. In retrospect, I think, so that was the end of family prayers. Um, in retrospect, I think it was just that my mother and I had on such holy faces. I think she thought, who the hell are you kidding? So to get us over that, we were sent to Sunday school and Anglican Sunday school. And so I know my Bible very well and yes. I know all the Bible stories. Unfortunately, about the time I was 11, fundamental or evangelical Anglicanism began to Mm. infect many of the churches, which had been quite happy being ecumenical and getting Mm. on with everybody else in the little suburb we lived in, which was a post-World War II suburb. And we suddenly had this ferocious minister who used to preach about the horrors of the citizens of Kingsgrove throwing their car keys into the middle of the room and then grabbing other car keys. And we were mm. so innocent, we'd wonder, why would you want to borrow somebody else's car? That's <laughs> really strange. And that was the innocence and ignorance yeah. of the childhood of the late 40s and 50s. Um, when I was about 14, 
we had to be confirmed in the Anglican Church and I was awfully keen because it involved a white dress and a veil. Mm. So we oh. also had to provide our... Very nunny. Oh, yes, and I'd seen the nun story by Audrey Hepburn, so I was dead keen. Um, and we had to provide um, the minister with our baptismal certificate. And I went home and asked my parents for it, and they said, sit down, we have something to tell you. And I thought, I knew I was a princess. Mm -hmm. They're going to tell me I'm a princess. But they produced it, and I'd been baptised a Catholic by my wicked Jewish grandmother. I don't know, she always liked to upset people. Yeah, so. yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So I took this baptismal certificate along and the delightful minister said, look, it doesn't matter. He was very enlightened. Yes. He said, you've been, mm. you know, you've been baptised, that's fine. But not being one not to wring as much drama out of that as possible, I insisted on going to Mass and this was before 1967, well before 1967. So as I approached Mass, I was almost killed in the rush of adolescents trying to leave Mass as I tried to get in. And it was terribly glamorous. First of all, it was in Latin mm. and there was incense <laughs> and a lot of getting up and yes. bowing and crossing yourself. And oh, I thought it was just wonderful. So I sort of <laughs> spent my time going between Anglican Church and, and Mass and sort of cherry-picking the best bits, really. Yes. My image of God at that stage was very much an external power, and I was much more interested in performance religion than actually yeah. internal religion. The liturgical aspect. Yes, yes, yes. The drama. The drama. The bells and smells, yes, yes yeah. very much so. When I got much, much older, I volunteered with the Loretto's for three months in India, and mm. I was first of all sent to rural India and I began to be greeted by everybody because Catholics are only 5% of the Indian population mm. but there are so many Indians, it's yeah. still a lot. And I lived in the convents, it was wonderful. And everyone, including the drivers and the cooks and everyone would say namaste. And so I'd say namaste back because I was a hippie for about 15 yeah. minutes in the 60s. <laughs> so. I finally asked what it meant, and it means I see the God in you, and I just thought it was absolutely oh, beautiful. Yeah. And so that's my image of God, looking into other people's eyes and seeing God. Yeah, and, that's beautiful. And, mm. yeah, um, I borrowed from Hinduism, but that's fine. Yeah, um, of course it is. <laughs> you know, very much. And very much in India in 2011, later on, there was civil unrest in the countryside. The Gurkhas wanted their own state. So the nuns smuggled me out of rural India and I thought, I've always wanted to be on the 7.30 report, but yeah. not like this. No. <laughs> smuggled by nuns. Yeah, <laughs> woman smuggled by nuns to Calcutta. <laughs> and Calcutta was such a different place. Yeah, I can um, imagine. Mm. And the Loretto said to me, you'll cry the first day, and I did, and you'll cry when you leave, and I oh. did. It was so different, but I, I grew to love it. Fast forward about eight years when I finally retired and I wanted to go back. Things had changed in India and I was not allowed into India because I was under the protection of the Catholic Church mm. and Mr Modi wanted everyone to be a Hindu. And that's what, why I then ended up volunteering for a couple of years in Timor-Leste. But I've jumped whole questions, I'm so sorry. No, that's good. That's... Um, but yeah, my other image mm. of God 
were the street children that Loretto is talking yeah. in in Calcutta mm. and fed and educated and knowing that when they were of an employable age their parents would come back and claim them yes and then of course going to Timor very much seeing God in all those people and I'll yeah. rant about Timor some, yeah, some later. Yeah. So, yeah, my image of God is looking into the eyes of other humans. Yeah, that's stunning. And that's good formation by your parents <laughs> and your life experience. I think the Loretto's, I think India, I think even Tanzania might have had something to do with yeah. that. Yeah. And in my uh, conversation with you, you said there is always one teacher who set you alight, which I found really, I guess, profound in many ways. That's a big responsibility for teachers <laughs> to set people alight. But it is, that's what, well, that's, I think that's what teaching should be. And you're a teacher through and through. Tell us about, well, that, why did you say that okay. statement? When I was in high school, we all fell in love with one of my English teachers. I was reflecting on this the other night. We really fell in love with her very pretty dresses. Yes. Um, one day she did something that I've continued to do, which was to hand me a pile of books and say, read them. And the one on top was 1984. Now, I was 14. I was very chuffed with 1984. And she mm -hmm. became one of my role models. When I got my leaving certificate, again, long before the HSC results, I got two scholarships because in those days you didn't have to pay for university. And I just knew I wanted to be a high school teacher. Yes. And four years later, that's what I became. I have secret society of the golden chain because the Elizabethans believed there was a golden chain of being from God down to the peasants. And in my 50 years of teaching, there have been a number of students who've become English teachers mm. because I taught them. And, you know, it's like this endless chain of, of people who teach because you bring joy. It's a yeah. joy to teach and it's a joy to pass on your love of literature, which began even earlier because going back to going to Anglican church and being puzzled by people borrowing each other's car keys, the other <laughs> thing that I loved was the language of the King James Bible yeah and the Book of Common Prayer, which of course is Shakespearean. Yes. And those resonances were my first experience of how language can be more than just language. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I teach passion of English. And one of my ex-students said, you used to come in about every three days and say, girls, I found another wonderful book. And I did, I, you know, because the bookshops used to lend me books to review and I reviewed every week in the school magazine. And so I, at parent-teacher night, often parents and I would talk about the books I'd recommended. Yeah. And there are always more books to read. I now have a rule, if it doesn't get me in the first 20 pages, I return it to the library. But it <laughs> used to be I read everything. Teaching is, to people like me, which makes this fairly boring amongst adults, but it's a sacred duty. And Absolutely. it's the duty of teaching literature, but teaching values and beliefs. And yeah. you can't teach, I don't think you can teach any subject without teaching your values and yeah. beliefs. 
And one of the things about the schools I've taught in is that I've chosen countercultural schools. Mm. So, you know, be less like the Kardashians and more like Audrey Hepburn, who was a beautiful actress, but also volunteered for the United Nations. Uh, so particularly teaching girls in the age of Facebook and all the other pieces of social media, most of which I use, but, you know, being much more aware of internal development and and kindness. Yeah, and, um, and the influences that they have. Like a lot of young people today have influences, not, not all necessarily great. No. And... So I think with teaching, I love that you said you're, you're not just teaching content, you're actually imparting values and yeah. um, what, what you stand for in life. So I thought I, the school, the last school I taught at for 20 years would collapse when I retired. And I had already arranged <laughs> to run away to Timor-Leste to teach for three months. Yes. Two years later, I was still there. I used to have to come back to Darwin every 90 days because you had to renew your um, visa. visa. Timor-Leste Day is the, probably one of the poorest countries in the world. Yes. It's still suffering from the Indonesian army occupation, which mm. finished in 2000 when United Nations intervened. But there is a blood-stained history of Timor-Leste, which people are still recovering from. It was probably the most profound learning I've ever done. In Timor, for 400 years, the Portuguese had used Timor as a gold mine. They yeah. took all the mm. vanilla pods, they took coffee. No one was allowed to speak Portuguese except 1% of the, of the Timorese, which suppressed 99% yes. of the population for 400 years and then they left in 1973. For 10 days, mm. Timor had independence and then the Indonesian army marched in. You also mentioned to me that you did the Ignatian spiritual exercises. What was that experience Amazing, like? a wonderful learning experience with five women, somewhat younger than I, but not all that much. And by Zoom, it was wonderful, it was 90 days, and all sorts of things came together. It was fascinating and liberating. And, yeah. and one of the great things I'm here to tell you is that you never stop learning. Yes. And so I was learning so much from those magnificent women as well as the uh, spiritual advisors. But yeah, that tied in beautifully. And it also tied in with volunteering and the sorts of great pleasures you get from volunteering as well as what one is doing which is you know teaching a language that is necessary. I taught in English in Tanzania and in India and again that was street children in the slums of Calcutta. Mm. I thought there would be no more confronting slums than those in Calcutta until mm. I went to Timor. One of the things we taught was street children and to teach them English was to give them a chance of at least getting some kind of job. Yes. Mm. Um, even though the caste system, is, caste system is still alive in India. And again, three months in rural and you know, urban India, 
again, you learn about the dark side as well yeah, as the absolutely. wonderful side of India. I didn't want to come back. I, mm. I just loved it, but I had to come back because, well, I was teaching. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah it, I fully intended to go back and then circumstances changed and yeah. I wasn't allowed back in. Yeah, I'm sure you'll go back sometime in the future. Well, Mr Modi is very stern. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess we're here to talk a little about Mary Ward, but obviously you're inspired by the Loretto vision. Absolutely. Uh, not just for women, but just general uh, charism and values. And one of the things we're doing, well, we're asking our guests is about vocation. And our podcast is called Transformative Love. Well, it's called Talking Transformative Love. But it is about transformative love, which people have found it challenging to talk about transformative love. Would you, would you be happy to talk? As an English teacher, you could talk about what that, those words mean. <laughs> well, while I was waiting uh, further along in the school, I had a chat to Mary Ward. I think that's a wonderful oh, yes, statue. statue. Yes, great. <laughs> I liked, she talked about love being, one of the words was efficacious. Yeah. And I thought, yes, because one of the things I'm fanatical about is the value of aid to developing countries. Mm. We had some other Australian volunteers who taught everyone in Bacow, which is the regional town I was living in, to swim. Yeah, well, it's an island. People yeah. drown. No one knows how to swim. swim. And one of the things mm. that people mistakenly do is send high-tech aid. So lots of hospitals in Australia, with the best will in the world, yes. will send humidicribs yeah. to Timor. First of all, the electricity is only on for 80% of the population yes. and it frequently fails. Secondly, there are no repair people in Timor for high-tech machines yeah. like humidity creeps. So if, after they break down, they just sit collecting dust in hospitals. Mm. They're useless. Teach somebody to swim. That's a practical skill that is needed. Low-tech. Yeah. And the other thing is that... <laughs> Timorese, like everybody, doesn't like being handed aid as if they're incompetent, yeah. even though in many cases their schools are lacking. So Rotary Australia does a wonderful thing and has gone around all of Timor and the poverty is just astonishing. And they dig wells in mm. every village, but more than that, so the people have got clean yes. water, they train three men to be repairmen for mm. the wells so that the well doesn't clog up. Yeah. So that and, and that the people are autonomous, they haven't to rely on coming in with aid or repair. You know, you can't fly a repairman from Australia to fix a fix a well in, no, in, in a Timorese village. Mm. So I really applaud Rotary because I think that's well thought out aid. A lot of aid and millions and millions have gone into Timor. And like India and like Tanzania and like any developing country, it doesn't trickle down. Yes. In the markets in Tanzania, we would often see medical supplies with a label, a gift from the people of Australia mm. being sold. So somebody had... Yeah, you know. a, yeah. So, yeah. And I'm not judging because 
if you're in that kind of poverty, mm. you look after your own family first. I understand yes. that entirely. So one of the things Mary A. Ward had, of the many things she had right, was efficacious. The aid has to be useful. It has to be effective. It has to be effective, yeah. has to be user-friendly. And if you don't have electricity, for example... Yeah, why give somebody an appliance that's, it, you know, yeah, relies that requires, on electricity? Yeah. Mm. So that's one of the... the and there were three... There were the, so the, the other, yeah, the others are constant and affectionate. Yeah, okay. Constant, I think, is really important because when I uh, arrived and Margaret Mary Flynn said to the uh, candidates, oh... Teacher Suzanne will be here for three months. They said, no, she has to be here for six. And I thought, oh, kidnapped by nuns. Uh, because It's popular. No, because they were sick and tired of rotating Having teachers. teachers. Yeah. And, of course, mm. then by six months, there was no way I was leaving. So, you know, I yeah. stayed on and on. And I would have probably still been there had it not been for COVID. So I think that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that sometimes your aid falls on harsh ground and doesn't bloom and you've got to keep going you've got to keep going it doesn't matter if you fail and so I saw some t some students didn't want to be taught or were angry about being taught or for whatever reason I used my fatal charm and eventually they all accepted but you've got to be constant in that you never give up if it's good volunteering yes. you have to keep going one of the one yeah. of the problems is that a lot of people come in with the messiah complex yeah. i will make you better instantly no you've got to be there for years and years when i was evacuated because of covid incidentally screaming and yelling until madre margaret mary flynn said look there's no hospitals in timor there really yeah. are what we normally do is fly you to darwin but of course Australia then had closed borders and so did Timor. Yes. So, you know, you will die here and that will be embarrassing. So she yeah. sort of, <laughs> that was a some shock treatment. And well, the other thing was affectionate. You have to walk with people you yeah, volunteer for. Absolutely. You can't, uh, look, as the candidates trusted me more and more and told me more and more, they apologised to me one day and said, Domestic violence is dreadful and Timor. And I said, students, domestic violence is dreadful in Australia. Yeah, everywhere. Uh, everywhere. But that was really important to them because, you know, we had to deal with drop toilets and cold showers yeah, yes. and creatures Ugh. like giant snails in the drop toilets and... We kept that amongst ourselves. We there was only eight Australians in Bacau. The couple from Western Australia, the legend Margie Burke had been there for 20 years as the volunteers, yes. and the Maris brothers and the Loreto sisters. And we would vent amongst ourselves what we were never discourteous to the Timorese because at least we had a drop toilet. A lot yeah. of them didn't. Mm. Um, it was still using the bushes. So you've got to be affectionate and, and of course... You can't help being affectionate. I mean, I was startled at first because the candidate used to bow before me, kiss my hands, oh, no. and I flew back to teach Year 9 and mentioned it and to the, them. And they said, no, thanks. No. <laughs> Sorry, miss. No. And I eventually asked the candidates not to kiss my yeah, hands. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm I glad. <laughs> very embarrassed. But it was a sign of respect for teachers. That won me. So... 
one of the things that Timor did was strip me of so much Western comfort. Yeah. Like washing machines and hot water yes. and cheese mm. and, you know, yeah. and meat. Yeah. And you, so you learnt to li live a much more s simple life. And also I used to catch a microlet to I, I lived with another volunteer, Margie Burke, in community, in the Timorese community. Yes. And then I'd catch a microlet, a little bus. And I was huge and all the Timorese are little because... During the Japanese occupation in World War II, they were deliberately starved. Mm. During the Indonesian occupation between 1973 and 2000, they were put in detention camps and starved. Mm. So they are quite short. Yeah. And so I get in the microlet and bump my head on the oh. ceiling. <laughs> and I love the fact that the Timorese just have this anything is funny, especially physical humour. So a Malai, a foreigner, mm. hitting a head on the microlet, oh, that was worth 15 minutes of yeah. uproarious laughter. So it was great. <laughs> yeah. So I learnt laughter, laughter mm. in the face of despair because when COVID came, we Westerners were terrified. Yeah. They weren't. It was just one more damn one plague, more, yeah, yeah. you know. Mm. And they kept wanting to go to church because God wouldn't give them COVID in church and we had to speak course, sternly yeah. to them. Yeah. Of course so, God wouldn't. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, that was the other thing, that, that the church is very traditional still in Timor. Yes. Vatican II hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. So, yeah, there were, there were wonderful things and appalling things and I loved it. It was as basic as living can get. The candidates would cook us meals and it would be ground nuts and it would be nice, wonderful tomatoes, which they grew, and really simple food. And then about every six weeks, we couldn't bear it and we'd drive the five hours to Dilly to get cheese. <laughs> cheese became <laughs> cheese. Cheese and chocolate. But Yum. You know, yeah. But yeah, there yeah. was there were moments of despair when candidates were snaffled by their parents because in one case a father had gambled all his mm. money and his daughter had to marry the winner oh, no. and there was nothing we could do. Yeah. So, so that was another thing. But one last story, one of the candidates came back from going home and she said, oh, teacher, they talk such rubbish at home about who's sold a goat and which hen has, has, has laid lots of eggs. And they don't want to talk about Barack Obama. And, I, uh, and I'd said, well, student, that's what most people talk yeah. about, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I had a terrible crisis of conscience. Was I taking her out of her culture so that she was now didn't belong in her native culture and didn't quite yet belong yeah. in, in developed world culture? So even that. Education does that, doesn't yeah, it? Doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it and, moves, and yeah, it moves people, and I think sometimes it displaces yeah, people. It does, yeah. and it's about. I guess it's about offering students the freedom to choose for themselves, but it does. It, in a sense, it displaces people from their own. Sometimes from their own families, and the uh, views yeah. that they've held for so long. Yes. Because all of a sudden they've seen the light, which we yeah. talked about there's always that teacher who sets you alight. Yeah. And that's what you've done for these 
communities, I'm sure. And they've set you alight, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It's been good to have you. Thank you. And Mary Ward will be very proud. I'm very proud of her. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for coming on the journey with us. This podcast was developed for Loretto Vocations Week. We want to continue the conversation, so we hope to see you at the next episode.